Hi, this is Rosie Tillis and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for a yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in the respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. In this episode, we'll be discussing compression neuropathies. Be sure to stay tuned after our episode from a message from our sponsors. Our guest host today is Dr. Linda Sandalis with the Department of Hand Surgery and Department of Plastic Surgery at Duke University. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sandalis. My pleasure. So compression neuropathy is defined as nerve entrapment, which is a disproportion between the volume of a nerve and the space through which it passes. The pathophysiology of compression neuropathy is elevated extraneural pressure that inhibits the intraneural microvascular blood flow. This in turn decreases axonal transport, which in turn causes endoneural edema, which leads to eventual demyelination, distal axon degeneration, and fibrosis. The degree of axonal injury is proportional to the duration and magnitude of compression. Compression can be acute or chronic and symptoms and damage depend on the amount like and duration of increased pressure, like I said. At 30 millimeters of mercury, patients will experience paresthesias and at 50 to 60, they will experience complete motosensory block. Diagnosis is typically obtained by a nerve conduction study, which will pick up segmental demyelination. This is exhibited by slowed nerve conduction. Electromyography is the primary study for detecting axonal loss. And compression neuropathies are associated with multiple other comorbidities, including diabetes, hypothyroidism, obesity, and menopause. So starting off with the median nerve, the anatomy of the median nerve is that it accompanies the brachial artery through the arm. It lies medial to the brachial artery at the elbow where it dives between the two heads of the pronator teres. So median nerve dives between the pronator teres. It continues down under the flexor retinaculum of the hand. At this point, you can try and remember the order tan tendon artery nerve. It then branches off of the median nerve are all distal to the elbow and include the AIN, which is a motor nerve, which comes off about four to six centimeters distal to the elbow. Um, the palmar cutaneous branch originates five centimeters proximal to the wrist crease and thenar motor branch, which runs radially to the thenar muscles and can go over, under, or through the transverse carpal ligament. Yeah, so I, that, that's a really good point. And the anatomy usually uh, help us a lot, as, as you know, right? A good surgeon is, is a good anatomist. <laughs> Uh, so a couple of points here uh, regarding the motor branch, there's this little tip when you put an X on the fingertip of the ring finger, and then you just close passively the hand, you know, through the normal cascade and where that X hits the thinner eminence, that's usually the neighborhood where the motor branch will be in that specific patient. And then another point that I wanted to make is something that you mentioned about the palmar cutaneous branch. One is after a carpal tunnel release, you know, one of the techniques is releasing the uh, forearm fascia. And when we release the forearm fascia, that's when sometimes, you know, the palmar branch could get injured. And then the other point that I wanted uh, sort of to bring up when um, patients come and complain of numbness in the palm of the hand, then that could perhaps be a reason to think about a compression proxima from the wrist crease. Like we were just talking about looking through at the compressive locations, the first one on our list is pronator syndrome. 
which is compression of the median nerve at or above the elbow beneath the ligament of struthers, the lacerdus fibrosis, the pronator or the fibrous arch of FDS. It presents with pain in the proximal forearm and weakness and paresthesias in the median nerve distribution, including the thenar eminence, like Dr. Sandalis just said. For physical exam, you can do a Tenel's. They'll also have motor weakness and diminished sensit sensitivity in the thenar eminence, like we discussed. You'll get an EMG or nerve conduction study, which is usually normal at this point. And treatment includes splinting, activity modification, or surgery. And surgery is 90% successful if you release the compressive tunnel. Um, the next one on our list for the median nerve compression syndromes is anterior interosseous nerve syndrome, which is compression of the median nerve at or distal to the elbow via the two heads of the pronator teres, the edge of the lacertus fibrosis, the biceps tendon bursa, FTS arcade, accessory head of FPL, an aberrant radial artery or thrombosed ulnar artery. This is compression of the anterior interosseous nerve. The nerve innervates the FDP index and long, FPL and PQ, but this is hard to test. So it can present with motor loss without sensory involvement. And it can be complete or incomplete and it may be associated with brachial plexitis, but generally it's a unilateral spontaneous onset of pain or weakness in the proximal forearm, inability to flex the thumb IP and index long, index and long DIPs, and then weakness in forearm pronation. An EMG or nerve conduction study can be helpful to localize the lesion and rule out other diagnoses. And the treatment of this depends on the etiology. If it's some sort of traction injury or traumatic, um, you can observe it and see if it, it gets better. If it looks like it's some sort of penetrative traumatic injury where there may be um, a nerve laceration you'll want to explore. And if it's a traction injury or something you're watching, you can wait six to 12 months prior to intervention to see if it will uh, regrow. And then the surgery is a lacerous fibrosis release, a PT release, or FDP fibrous arch release. So moving a little distally into the arm, we'll talk about the carpal tunnel. And the contents of the carpal tunnel include the median nerve and nine flexor tendons. Sometimes we get asked about the borders of the carpal tunnel in our exams and the roof is the TCL, the floor are the radial carpal ligaments and borders are the scaphoid and trapezium radially and the triclecium and the hamate ulnarly. So carpal tunnel syndrome is the most common compressive neuropathy affecting up to 10% of the population. It is often associated with diabetes, hypothyroidism, pregnancy, renal disease, arthritis, or other inflammatory conditions. It usually presents with intermittent to constant paresthesia in the median distribution, particularly at night, pain which may radiate proximally, decreased dexterity and weakness or atrophy later on. The staging includes mild, moderate, or severe, and early mild carpal tunnels characterized by intermittent paresthesias, pain, and nighttime symptoms. Intermediate or moderate carpal tunnel is characterized by more frequent paresthesias, worse with use numbness, clumsiness, and advanced severe carpal tunnel is characterized by constantly impaired sensibility, severe pain, thenar atrophy, and pinch opposition weakness. Acute carpal tunnel syndrome is different than chronic nerve compression because this onset is sudden, often after a fracture, spontaneous hemorrhage, thrombosis of a persistent median artery, or pyogenic infection, and a delay of 36 hours of release may result in poor prognosis. So you need to make sure to take a history on these patients. Physical exam will show thenar atrophy. Make sure you test the APB, evaluate pinch strength, and then evaluate two-point sensation. 
The physical maneuvers that we use are Durkin's, which is manual compression of the canal. This is the most sensitive and specific by assessing symptoms after compression at the carpal tunnel. Phalen's is tested by pressing the back of the hands together. And a Tonell's, you can assess in wrist flexion by tapping on the nerve from distal to proximal. And a nerve conduction study will show distal latencies and slowed velocity. EMG will show fibrillations, positive sharp waves, and decreased amplitude, but you can diagnose it without conduction studies. This is not necessary for a diagnosis of carpal tunnel. Ultrasound is sometimes also used to look at transverse images, and this assesses the median nerve in the carpal tunnel and the median nerve proximal. And then the ratio between those two volumes can give you an idea of the compression. In general, treatment begins with night splints. Sometimes you can do steroid injections, about half get relief from carpal tunnel syndrome for around a month. And then definitive management is surgery in patients who have failed non-operative treatment or have severe disease. There are several different types of surgical treatment, including open transverse carpal tunnel release or endoscopic carpal tunnel release, which studies have shown rehab faster. Complications of a carpal tunnel release include incomplete release, damage to the palmar cutaneous branch, like Dr. Sandalis was talking about earlier, a hypertrophic painful scar or bowstringing of the tendons at the carpal tunnel. Splints and therapy are not necessary post-surgically and antibiotics are only indicated for patients with diabetes or patients that have an immunocompromised state. And adjunctive procedures to a carpal tunnel release include hypothenar fat pad, radial forearm fascial flap, radial artery perforator base flap to prevent scarring. And release of the transverse carpal ligament releases Guillain's canal in about 89% of patients with ulnar symptoms and they will have relief. That's, that's a really good, really good review that highlights really good points, particularly for board questions. When is the only setting where you would not go through conservative treatment and go straight to surgery in, in a carpal tunnel setting? That's a board question. And of course, as you both know, is the clinical finding of thinner atrophy because atrophy is irreversible. And so the goal it is to stop the progression of the disease, but it will not reverse the motor, the atrophy. It will reverse, you know, some of the sensory, you know, the numbness and the sensory uh, symptoms. Now, in terms of complications, uh, the comparison between open and closed, you know, the endoscopic provides a, a quicker return to work uh, short term, but not uh, long term, uh, which which is consistent with with most other laparoscopic or endoscopic procedures in surgery in general. The complication of bowstringing is a serious one. is very is not common, but when it happens, it, it's it's really debilitating. So some of the techniques that that we use or that I have used is 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 to instead of opening the carpal tunnel in a longitudinal way like we mostly do, we could do it in a zigzag fashion and then sort of transpose the X of the zigzag uh, and then in that. And you just need to do like, you know, one turn and that will work as a pulley, but then it will open, you know, the, the compression of the carpal tunnel. So that's sort of a, a good technique just to have in mind. Yeah. I had one more question before we move on. I'm sorry, but um, can you talk a little bit about, I know you do both in office release, like wide awake release and 
operative release. And so I know that's an ongoing trend. And so can you speak to that just a little bit, who you choose to do Wide Awaken, your technique? Yeah, so it's a very, very good point. My practice is turning towards now the majority of my carpal tunnel releases are in the minor procedure room in the clinic uh, right awake. Patients do really, really well because, of course, as you know, there are many variables. It's a 10-minute procedure, 45-minute setting. The patient, you know, can have breakfast that morning, drive on their own, is local. And I, so far, my complication rate is very low. The, the determination of when I do it in the, in, or at least offer it to the patient in the clinic versus the operating room, it clearly needs to be a patient that will tolerate, you know, a local or, or a wrist block. There are patients that say, no, if, if you're going to do an injection, I don't want to be awake. So those patients will go mostly for the sedation, because as you know, the procedure, the post-op, everything is, is identical. It's really the same. So it's mostly a patient that will tolerate just being awake. And uh, that would be the patient that would be ideal. And, and just for, for the sake of the, of the comment, other procedures that are under local, you know, in the clinic, like trigger fingers, like first dorsal compartment uh, release, um, you know, small masses, you know, I, we have had very good experience in the clinic with those procedures. All right, moving on, we'll talk about the radial nerve next. So um, the anatomy of the radial nerve, it originates from C5 through 8 and T1. It spirals around the posterior aspect of the humerus with the profunda brachii artery around 13 centimeters proximal to the trochlea. It pierces the lateral intramuscular septum between the brachialis and brachioradialis about 7.5 centimeters proximal to the trochlea and then travels anterior to the lateral epicondyle. It's the radial nerve. It then divides into the deep and superficial branches, the PIN and the SBRN. The deep PIN splits the supinator muscle and innervates the extensors from ulnar to radial, except for the mobile wad. And it terminates at the wrist capsule. That's the PIN. The superficial, the SBRN, travels between brachioradialis and ECRL and provides sensation to the dorsal radial aspect of the hand. Some compressive locations of the radial nerve include radial tunnel syndrome, which is caused by compression from fibrous bands, the vascular leash of Henry, ECRB, the proximal supinator or distal supinator. It presents with pain over the anterior lateral aspect of the elbow, pain that increases with passive pronation or wrist flexion or active supination and wrist extension, but without sensory or motor disturbance. And it may coexist with tennis elbow. So exam will show pain over the PIN you can use the middle finger test, which means that symptoms are exacerbated by resisted extension of the middle finger and resisted supination. An EMG or nerve conduction study is not usually helpful and treatment of radial tunnel syndrome can range from conservative like activity modification and splinting to injections. And then surgical release, you'll usually release pretty much everything that may be compressing it in that area. Do you have a preference for management of this? I have done release and it works well. I think one of the important points is the differential diagnosis with lateral epicondylitis, or if it comes in combination with that, which, which I think 
it's like a must of, you know, test for both. If somebody complains of proximal forearm, either pain or numbness and, and the treatment, I start also with conservative, right? And, uh, you know, I have found that if patients are compliant, they respond well. Um, I actually had a patient today with, with that and, and he's responding well, um, but it, it really needs compliance and I'm very detail oriented. I have done releases and, and it works well as well. Is I think it's like everything, if it's really indicated and it has failed conservative. Moving on to posterior interosseous nerve syndrome. So this is caused by entrapment at the elbow via neoplasms or radial head dislocation. It usually presents with a progressive loss of extensors. So the wrist extends in radial deviation and you cannot actively extend at the MCPs. So this one's different than radial tunnel syndrome because PIN syndrome has a loss of motor function. Um, differential diagnosis includes RA or tendon ruptures, which would also give you difficulty extending at the MCPs. And then treatment of posterior interosseous nerve syndrome is anywhere from conservative to surgery. So usually the activity restrictions and splinting are what we start with for eight to 12 weeks. And then surgical release of the PIN via an anterior or transverse approach through extensor intervals. So like VR splitting or um, VR ECRL or EDC ECRB. Right. And you made a really good point about a board question with patients with rheumatoid arthritis, because as you know, synovitis can cause tendon rupture. And so that is a differential diagnosis, right? So that's why you know, one of the distractors or not would be rheumatoid arthritis, right? Because that will cause tendon rupture and inability to extend, right? Now, a good tip would be if it's all the fingers or just some of the fingers. Okay, the last compressive radial nerve pathology that we'll talk about is Teralgia parasitica, which is Wartenberg syndrome. It's SBR and entrapment caused by compression from external forces or narrowing of the interval between BR and ECRL. This happens with pronation of the forearm. The symptoms are over the radio dorsal hand. You'll have pain, numbness, or paresthesias. Provocative tests are tunnels over the nerve and pain with pronation. And treatment, obviously, if it's compression from external forces, just remove the jewelry or activity modification. You can also do steroid injections. And then surgery is about 80% effective with release of the deep fascia around the nerve with or without a Duclair veins release. Um, All right, we'll talk about the ulnar nerve next. For the anatomy, it comes from C8 to T1. It runs medial to the brachial artery and then behind the medial epicondyle where it enters the forearm between the two heads of the FCU. It then travels between FCU and FDP and crosses the wrist in Guillain's canal where it divides into superficial and deep branches. It runs ulnar and volar to the ulnar artery, ulnar and volar. The dorsal sensory branch of the ulnar nerve branches six centimeters proximal to the ulnar head to supply the ulnar dorsum of the hand. Immediately proximal to the wrist crease, the palmar radial fibers become superficial and branch dorsal ulnar to become the deep motor branch. The sensory component provides sensation to the ulnar half of the hand. The deep motor branch innervates FCU and FDP of the ring and small finger, the palmaris brevis, the hypothenar muscles, the third and fourth lumbricals, the dorsal interossei, palmar interossei, thenar muscles, 
the adductor pollicis and the deep head of the flexor pollicis brevis. Compression sites include cubital tunnel syndrome, which we commonly see. This is caused by compression, traction, friction, or decreased size of the cubital tunnel. An example of this is during flexion at the arcade of struthers, the medial intramuscular septum, the medial epicondyle, the cubital tunnel, which is known as Osborne's ligament, the deep aponeurosis of FCU, the triceps, or the ankyneus, which is an anomalous muscle. This presents with intermittent paresthesias of the ulnar two digits, extrinsic and intrinsic motor weakness, so FDP to the ring and small, and the patients may have mild clawing. The dorsal sensory loss is what differentiates this from Guillain's canal compression, which does not have sensory symptoms. Physical exam may show atrophy, decrease in motor strength, decrease in sensibility, or a tenels at the elbow, and a positive elbow flexion test. This is a provocative maneuver. In addition, you need to look for nerve subluxation with elbow flexion, and that is defined as when it comes out of the retrocondylar groove and dorsal interossei wasting. The Wartenberg sign is different than Wartenberg syndrome and is ulnar clawing of the ring and small fingers. The Froment sign may also be seen in cubital tunnel syndrome, and this is where you ask the patient to grasp a piece of paper between their thumb and index finger, and the patient with a compressive neuropathy and with motor nerve paralysis of the ulnar nerve, they will grasp with the IP joint of the thumb instead of the dorsal interossei. And the last is the pyramid sign, which is loss of intrinsics in the hand. Treatment for mild cases of cubital tunnel may be an elbow splint in which the patient is placed in 45 degrees of elbow extension. And surgery may consist of in situ decompression, which is preferred if the nerve does not subluxate at the elbow. And an anterior transposition is preferred for subluxation and very severe disease. And the nerve can be transposed subcutaneously, submuscularly, or intramuscularly. Another treatment option includes a medial epicondylectomy, which eliminates compressive possibility, but it may cause elbow instability. And based on studies of these, not one is superior to the other. So that is a lot to go through. Dr. Sindals, do you want to talk a little bit about um, your assessment of these patients and your preferred methods of treatment and transposition. So cubital tunnel is common. Uh, you made a really good point about the subluxation. It needs to be corrected. That is that is an indication to take the patient to surgery uh, for correction. And the sub-Q method is, you know, the preferred. So in patients that are very thin, the subcutaneous uh, transposition could also leave the nerve somehow exposed. As you know, the ulnar nerve at the cubital tunnel is the most superficial nerve in the body. And that's why, you know, it's more prone to, to injury. And so a sub, subcutaneous transposition, you know, in somebody very thin will, will likely also cause that. So it's just things to pay attention, um, to pay attention to, but it is an indication to, to transpose. Now, it is true, as you all said, that, you know, the different procedures, the outcomes are similar. Um, so there's no need to really transpose the nerve um, unless it is dislocated or unless it's a recurrent, you know, a cubital tunnel, in which case the transposition, either submuscular or um, sub-Q would be, would be indicated, would be probably the, the way to go. The next thing we'll talk about is ulnar tunnel syndrome or Guillain's canal. This is compression of the ulnar nerve at the palmaris brevis, fibrous origin of the FDM, ulnar artery aneurysm or thrombosis, hook of the hamate or ganglion cyst. 
and a ganglion cyst is the most common cause of compression at Guillain's canal. The presentation includes numbness or paresthesia in the palmar aspect of the ring and small fingers. These patients will not have dorsal hand numbness as the dorsal sensory branch comes up proximal to the wrist crease and therefore is not compressed. And they will also present with weakness and atrophy of the ulnar intrinsics. On exam, so just to know, and anatomically, the nerve is divided into three zones, which have different presentations based on etiology. So zone one or type one presents with motor and sensory weakness. And this is usually due to a ganglion cyst or fracture at the hook of the hamate. Zone two presents with isolated motor weakness, which is usually also due to a ganglion cyst. And zone three presents with isolated sensory weakness. And this is usually due to an ulnar artery thrombosis. On evaluation, you can look for small apertures with x-rays in a carpal tunnel view or CT MRI. An EMG or nerve conduction velocity may be abnormal. And if the hook of the hamate is broken, excision may be performed as treatment. Treatment is generally conservative if it's due to repetitive trauma, if there's no mass or idiopathic. Surgery is recommended if these patients are refractory or if there is an identifiable cause like a hook of the hamate fracture or a ganglion cyst. Yeah, so here, another good point, again, like we mentioned in the carpal tunnel, is the anatomy, right? If it's proximal uh, from the wrist and there's dorsal symptoms, then, you know, um, it's different than if it's purely motor uh, and it's at the Guillain's canal. So that's a good clinical tip, similar to the carpal tunnel with the palmar branch uh, or the radial nerve with the PIN. So say you had a patient that had presentation or diagnosed carpal tunnel and the Guillain's canal compression. Do you yeah. start with the carpal tunnel release only given that those patients get a majority of those patients ulnar nerve symptoms resolve, or will you do both a carpal tunnel and a Guillain's canal release? So that's a great point. And as you know, I, I always start with conservative treatment and sufficient time to see if it results or not. All right. The last thing that um, we'll mention our miscellaneous fact of the day is double crush syndrome, which is compression at the nerve root origin, like in the neck, and then also at another distal site. So in this case, you should treat peripherally first, and it often will relieve these symptoms. Yeah. So this is something that I usually have very uh, present when I see patients. Um, for example, patients that come with bilateral symptoms, bilateral cubital tunnel, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. bilateral, then you start sort of thinking about something more central, right? Because of the double nerve compression. And I am very clear to the patients because of course you, you know, when you send for, for uh, other testing, you know, exclude radiculopathy, right? Because, because you want to be very explicit with the patient and explaining that that no matter what, even if you do a peripheral release, if there is a more central component, they will not, they will only get better the component that is peripheral. So it will, they will not be completely, uh, it will not completely resolve the symptoms unless it's treated, you know, at all the sites. And if it comes from the C-spine, then no matter how many surgeries you do peripherally, it will not completely resolve, right? Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sandalis, for thank being with us today on compression neuropathies. We appreciate you being here and giving your expert advice. So thank, thank you for the invitation.
We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now a part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.